Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by the Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two, whilst occasionally sampling a beer, Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing with this week's Market Report. Market Report for week commencing 29th of May 2023. So May is nearly done and dusted. It's another bank holiday, which makes three in the month of May, which is great. Sort of gets in the way of moving grain and so on, doesn't it? Yeah, other than that, this is uh, Doing Grain Podcast Day that I'm recording it first thing in the morning before I set off on our little trek. Possibly a lonely journey, but I'm actually pretty confident we've got some people coming. They've emailed and said, do you mind if we come along? Well, we don't mind because whoever turns up, turns up. Yeah, so there's a good start. Right, the market has gone down a lot, and there are little green shoots of possibilities of the market rallying beginning to show, although I think this is mainly led from the States. So the States, for example, on December corn, and we're talking new crop here, because old crop's all over by the shouting, new crop corn went down below $5 a bushel and has gone up from 4.99 a bushel to 5.22 in the last two or three days. Now that's not that particularly significant because it's still in a downward trajectory if you take the last several months but it is maybe the stop of the rot i personally think it is more the funds just taking some of their massive short position off to reduce the risk take some of the profits and so if ever the market does turn they haven't got to buy a ridiculously large amount of stuff and you kind of miss the boat so i think it's just some of the risk off profit take moment bounce and then i think once that's done i can't see that being anything more than bearish with the current planting conditions the current speed of planting and the weather forecast that we're aware of in the next few weeks and there might be something creeping on the radar because the whole market is green this morning again led from the states so just maybe this is the moment but i don't think so i think this is a little step i do think we're getting we're running out of steam on the downward side but i do think we've got the worst moment to come yet and in the meantime the weather generally is exceptionally good uk has now got the uv that it needs to get the crop going it was full of moisture now it's got plenty of sunshine it's not too hot so lots of the moisture is not evaporating and the crop is developing nicely i think most people are quite pleased yes there's the odd troublesome or bit that's slightly concerning some of the spring barleys have got yellowing where they sat cold for too long they like to get planted grow and never stop growing and they've had a bit of a hiccup in their development but I think that will come back and I don't think it's a problem as we speak and I think East Anglia in particular looks brilliant but we'll be doing some crop inspection while we walk around the footpaths of Bressingham later on today so we can see what heavy land South Norfolk wheat and barley looks like and hopefully they haven't planted rape in a particular field where there's a footpath because that could cause a bit of a diversion anyway so moving on to markets Let's get ready for harvest. So that's the first thing I've got to say. June means clean your stores out, get everything out of the way, quantify everything, start pushing that button. The prices are particularly unattractive. Either you can keep it or you can't. Stop faking it. If you can't, get on with it and sell it. It's not going to get any better. It's had it. Um, There might be a blip at the very end of July if we get a later harvest, which is a possibility. But I don't see that as a probability. So I would get on with it. X farm feed wheat for June is 165X and July 167X. So it is clearly contract lows and it's contract lows for a very good reason. We've been talking about it for a very long time. 
Feed barley, you know, I don't really know. So 155x will say that one is, and I could be completely wrong. If you phone up with some feed barley, I'll have to say, oh, I'll check out the price. But somewhere in that region for old crop. Moving on to new crop on wheat and barley, we'll do that in that order. I think that the harvest movement delivered store for feed wheat would be about 168. That's 20 pounds under the knob features. So on the day of the combining it, straight into a store, available to you, 168 pounds a tonne. I think X Farm November is currently worth 173, which is 15 pounds under the North Futures. You don't need me to tell you the price. If you look at the futures, you can work out roughly where our price matrix or how our price matrix works. We as a business, depending on where a farm is, sometimes it's nearer to certain consumers. You might save a few quid on a hornet. So this, there's penny in it sometimes. So this is a guidance. You can keep up to date, and I'll remind you of this again. The app that we've got has market information in it. It isn't kept, we wouldn't put something in there every single day because you end up making up stories like we do on the podcast sometimes. But it's there as a resource, as a value. It's got a markets page. You can press it on, see a chart, see the general direction of a market and see what the the London future is certainly doing that day with a 15-minute delayed quote, which is really useful because if someone's feeding you with a line, you can say, well, look, here's the price. Actually, it's better than you're saying. All right. So know your futures and know your basis relationship to it. Where did I get to? Oh, yeah, I gave you a harvest price. So November X-Farm 173, which would make October 172, September 170. If you're selling August buyer's call where we got to say, no, we're not moving it till the last week of August, you'd probably get something like 167, which is £1 less than the delivered store price for immediate movement. That might appeal if you've got a shed that can cope for a minute or two and we determine when it moves. One more thing I just want to say about the harvest movement. Store charges at central stores are going to go up. You know, I manage a couple of them and we obviously hire a whole load of storage. The reality of costs nowadays of everything, certainly energy-wise, have made putting stuff into store a much more expensive occupation. And with the ever-tightening criteria on qualities, bugs, ergot, the risks attached to it are quite immense. When people get, you know, you're ripping us off and those comments that do come from some of you, Build your own store, you know. <laughs> It'll cost you £300 per tonne to do that if you want to tie all that capital up. And more importantly, it will cost you time. It will cost you, you're not doing the work and you have to pay someone a wage. If you do it yourself in your spare time, that means midnight sometimes in harvest time. So there's lots more to it. And as for the drying charges, I mean, I haven't actually fully worked out exactly where they're going to be this year. But I'm pretty certain that every central store is going to send out a list pre-harvest to say these are our drying charges. And a lot of people who don't own a dryer or don't have to do the job are going to cough and tell the world that the world is ripping them off. But let me tell you, it is not a game for the faint-hearted, especially when you get three harvests on the trot that are dry. So that dryer you spent £450,000 on sits there with depreciation and a servicing requirement every single year, and you don't earn any money from it. So it needs to be there for the day that it rains. And that's the day that you need it. And that's the day that you moan like crazy about your drying charges. But I'm sounding like an old broken record here. But it is something that a lot of people squeal about who are too lazy to do the job themselves. And they really don't understand the argument they're putting forward. They're not thinking about it in a fair and equitable manner, if you like. Anyway, that's whinge over for the poor old storekeeper providing a service. Anyway, see up, Andrew. Aussie rape has rallied. Da, da, da. 320x for June, that's not much for a rally, but it's gone up a ditty bit. All part of this US-led thing, possibly. It seems to be rallying this morning again. Yeah, let's just close our eyes and hope it goes up to 321, eh? I mean, all of that is over by the shouting. We've suffered the misery of it. New crop is about a £5 discount to that. 
But, you know, it's a movable feast and it moves quite violently each day. So when you get to the moment of feeling like doing something, then contact us. Milling premiums are going to remain firm, it looks like, for the coming season. So there's no hurry to have to fix your premiums or do something on a minimum premium basis because I think the premiums are going to be good anyway. So keep your options open on who you can sell to. Go to a home that is more relaxed or usable than some of the more stringent guys who take claims off you. Malting barley, same sort of story. Old crop's done and dusted. There is no opportunity on that. It's had it. And new crop, the premiums, I think, will remain certainly firm over the feed price. You know, feed barley's in the doldrums, so the premium for malting barley over feed is 40 quid, which sounds like a lot. Don't be fooled by that one. It should kind of be a relationship to wheat futures and then a premium over that. And the feed barley price is a bit more flaky, so some merchants use that as a persuasive look at how big the premium is versus the feed. It's not the way round you should be thinking at the moment. So I think the basis of the strength in the market is fundamentally the supply within Europe. The UK's probably got enough. The jocks are overbuilding capacity, so they're always going to be hungry. The distilling side of the world is always much in demand. Yeah, so with that, I think we've had a pretty miserable week in terms of prices. Slight recovery beginning to show, but I don't think it's the new dawn yet. And we've got a bank holiday weekend to enjoy, and the weather looks like it's going to be sunny. And finally, we have got so much grain piling out of store at the moment. The wheat futures are absolutely steaming out, which is great. Malting barley dribbling out, a bit worrying. I think all molsters have bought this champagne crop and stuffed themselves to the gunnels. And the guys I've got storage contracts with, they've gone, ooh, I haven't got any space. So we are beginning to create space. If you take Aylsham as an example, we've got five empty bins. So even if we were stuffed still, we would be 5,000, 7,000 tonnes worth of capacity we could cope with on the first day. So it's, you know, we're clean, ready to go in good time. But our ambition is to, by the end of June, have absolutely everything empty. And the reality is we'll probably have about 10% of our bins still with grain in them. So uh, hopefully harvest will be a little bit late and just give us that early bit of July to tidy up, which certainly didn't happen last year. Anyway, with that... Have a great week and I'll let you know about the podcast walk and how it went. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich. We are a creative agency specialising in graphic design, websites, digital marketing and SEO services tailored towards local and small businesses, a design agency you can trust. Get in touch to inquire with our friendly team today on 01603 728 978 or head over to our socials at East Coast Design Studio on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. Hello, so this week in a slight change of the format of Dew and Grain, our podcast, it's me actually interviewing the founder of Dew and Grain, my boss and also my dad, which can be a blessing and a curse. So can you introduce yourself please? Hello, I've never been interviewed before. <laughs> no doubt I'll be full of criticism afterwards. <laughs> so obviously, you've been in the industry a fair while, can you give us a brief overview of why you want to get in the grain industry? I wanted to get in the grain industry because I failed to be a professional footballer, even though I really wanted that to be number one. So I just got a job and I happened to work at a company called Dalgetty's at Rackheath. And you've always been based in Norfolk? (laughs) Strong in the arm, thick in the head. Yep, Norfolk boy. And yes, I have always lived and will always be in Norfolk. And in the last, how many years have you been involved in it? I've been in the trade since 1978, the 3rd of July, 1978. And Dewing Grain is? And Dewing Grain was formed in 2006. 
What made you want to start your own business rather than work for a big company? This is different, actually, being this side of the microphone, isn't it? <laughs> You're right. I have to do some thinking. Right. I didn't fit in the corporate world. I was particularly rubbish at it. I couldn't sit in meetings and hear Jobsworths climbing the greasy pole, saying yes to everything that went well and then no to everything that didn't, and pretending they weren't involved. I just didn't fit in that world. I was a trader, first and foremost. I aspired to be a trader because I admired them for my early days. and. Yeah, I didn't fit in the corporate world. And in the end, I was fortunate enough to have... I was working at a company called BDR who won the lottery. And I got a sort of 130 grand's worth of cash, which a number of other people at that company got. And it enabled me to take a change of direction in the sense I left a big organisation and went to work for Alsham Grain Limited and set up a marketing business for them which gave me kind of independence of corporateness. And from there, it's an elongated story, but let's just put it this way. We succeeded as that. And what evolved is we eventually merged into a bigger group. And yet again, I ended up in a bigger corporate organization and I just didn't fit. I didn't get what I wanted to be done the way I wanted it to be done. I couldn't achieve those goals. I was overruled by people who were not traders. And in the end, I wanted to be a grain trader that was free to trade. And hence, I had a jump at doing that in 2006. Yeah, so we've been obviously around for a while, coming up to our 20th year in not so far long away. I mean, what are the probably what are the biggest significant changes you've noticed in the industry in the last 30 years? Well, clearly we've employed a lot of idiots. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, yeah, there is a massive change in that in my career, there's been, it was kind of, when I joined, there was a whole lot of ex-army types and very posh schoolboys who were controlling the show. And it was a little club. And it evolved, companies like Dalgetty's kind of broke that mould and the young upstarts that they were kind of shook it up and made it a bit less reverent. Yeah, and then in that time, lots of companies have disappeared, lots of corporations have come in and taken control of the industry, so it's a lot smaller. The characters sound like they've sort of almost fallen off a bit. There seems to be a lot of characters from your stories back in the day, whereas I'm not sure there's as many. Well, people don't do things anymore, do they? Everyone's risk-averse. Everyone thinks inside a little box and daren't actually... They've got compliance all over the shop, haven't they? And they've, you know, this podcast can reach far a long way. Yeah, look, yeah, you've got people who aren't prepared to speak or come on this podcast because they aren't allowed to speak, which is really hilarious. You know, mm. what's the point of being alive if you can't speak? If you can't actually say, oh, I think this, even if you work for someone else, it's no reflection on... Well, it's a reflection on you that you've gagged, is a thought I have. And I think that's one of the advantages of being independent. I think ever since I've been able to call the business Doing Grain, I've loved it. I've really liked the dynamic of that. I can do what the hell I like. As long as I make a profit and I've got enough to pay the bills, you know, we can sponsor who we want. We can pay whatever money we want to the charities that we want to do. And we can say kind of outrageous stuff, tongue in cheek. I don't think we're disrespectful. I think we're a bit... No, I don't. I think looking at the industry as a whole as well, the thing where we're quite good is, like you say, we're kind of, we have freedom to be able to go and do certain things where other people might not so much. Well, so go back to the question where you said there were characters. I think a lot more people had a lot more freedom in those days. So you go to some of these traders and yeah, people get drunk nowadays, but they kind of do it afterwards or somewhere completely away. But there were some pretty hairy, hefty do's in the past where there's a lot of people misbehaving. And it was misogynistic. There's no denying that. There was barely any women. I mean, the Norfolk dinner, I think one year, had two women at it. And, you know, nowadays it's probably... <laughs> so we've doubled. But the, um... So as an example, if you were to take a London ball, which happens twice a year, if you took one from 20, 25 years ago compared to now, 
Well, there wasn't a London Bourse because you didn't need to have a London Bourse because everyone went to market. You went to Mark Lane in London or you went to Bury or you went to wherever your regional market was. But Bury was a big one every Wednesday. And that was something that I think for someone like me, it was really good. I really suited it, but other people didn't. But you didn't have any kind of snaky little pale-faced people who were only brave behind a phone in those days because if they were and they did something really offside... They'd get one stuck on them, you know. Well, seen... what was the format of Berry Market? Well, you'd... it was a great honour to go there. I'll tell you a true story about Berry Market. My first ever time I went, first time I ever went actually, it was David Brown at Dalgetty's took me down there to show me, and I went in to this Doric pillared, magnificent building, completely overawed, and there was all these really wise types in there wandering around with these just really impressive. I was so terrifying the level of knowledge I thought they had versus my really inadequate experience. And I thought, blimey, one day maybe I'll get to come here. Anyway, within about three weeks, Brownie said to me, right, you can go. I've probably told this story on the podcast before, but it sticks to my mind. And I thought, wow, what earth is he doing that for? And it cut a lot, very long story short, it transpired. Because I used to put the bag together, which meant I had a leather briefcase, and you put your samples in there with a coded price on it. So you were able to gauge what people are bidding by putting different nitrogens. And so if you paid £120 a tonne, the code for that, with the code we used, was EVX. EVX would be 120 That's the code. I knew that. The people who was buying it wouldn't know. So I knew what price to ask. I'd add haulage and add a margin and try to get a bit more, maybe. And then, you know, maybe be lucky. And so I'd go down with my bag, I'd have my little code on there, and I'd offer it to a molster, and he'd either go chuck it on the floor, and go, nah, I don't want that, or yes. And, and I liked that. It was physical. It was like, if people really wanted to buy, but they didn't, they wanted to give you a good slap, they'd just chuck all your samples and go, no, nah, there's nothing in there of interest to me. And it's like, okay, I get it. We've done something to upset you. I've gone off track for the story. Anyway, so I turned up at Berry Market. He said, you go. And I walked in there, and I was like, my tweed jacket on, and tie on done up so I couldn't breathe I walked up the steps and I went up to the Dalgetty stand and there was this guy with his foot on the stand which is incredibly rude all these things were like how rude he's put his foot on my stand and uh hello I'm Andrew doing pleased to meet you where's Brownie says Clive Chewers and I go um well David's not here today I'm here instead really emphasizing my non-Norfolkness with my posh English voice and he said well you can tell him you know I'm gonna sort him out when I see him Uh, okay Apparently, Brownie had taken some claims off him at the Yarmouth boat, and he was frightened of Clive Jewers sticking one on him. <laughs> That's a great introduction. So he sent you. Yeah, he sent me. But the beauty of it was the market had changed direction that week, and not only did I, I was told the prices that I was supposed to sell it at, the market had moved up, and I offered it a, a lot more money and sold it for a lot more money, which was like always great when that happens. But more importantly, I twigged that quite quickly, and I phoned the office before the phones used to get jammed, there weren't mobile phones. So the phones used to get jammed by people if the market did something where they'd stop other people getting the message out and people had to go downstairs into the local pub, the nutshell, or into a, find a public phone to phone their office to say, this market's going up, buy the hell out of everything. So I was able to get the message through quickly before the phones got blocked to Rackheath, which enabled them to get out into the market and pay a bit more money. Were they well attended? Yeah. What, yeah. like... I don't know, they'd be, well, in harvest time, they'd be, I don't know, yeah, 100 or so, I can't remember, 200, I don't know. Would you go down every Wednesday, harvest, no harvest? Yeah, pretty well, yeah, all the way through the year it was attended. It got a bit quiet in the summer, you can imagine. And when did that finish? Must be in the 90s. So obviously technology's changed massively in the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, I mean. For the good or the bad? 
technology, communication technology has. I mean, we knew what nitrogens were then. It had moved from being, you know, the looking at stuff by eye was what went out the window. No, no longer does anybody do that or have to do that, which is why it died. So you take the nitrogen test on the bag, and if it fails on delivery, then everyone knows what happens next. But the communication side of things is best again i've told this story in the podcast before but to summarize the first time i took the company mobile phone down to berry market i was the coolest thing this side of mercury i was like just the best and i had this great big bag full of corn samples on the other side a great big bag full of telephone and i went to use it to phone through the office and make sure everybody in the whole hall saw me <laughs> you can imagine that you know that little face henry pulls when he does something a little bit smug and it's yeah, like yeah. Yeah, I know the one. Yeah, you do, because you get all reacting. And it's just the same when you pull it at him. So I, there's me pulling that face to all the rest of the Granger. I haven't got a mobile phone. And I'm dialing the office, and I'm shouting into this thing with this terrible reception. Yes, I'm on the mobile at Berry. Yes, my, the mobile. <laughs> and anyway, at the end of my call, the old boy who used to answer the phone with his three-piece suit on came up. He used to guard the phones, the six phones were there. And he tapped me on the shoulder and said, it'll never catch on. <laughs> so that's the real irony because yeah i mean wow you can contact seven thousand people in five milliseconds with your whatsapp now can't you totally yeah or you can go on twitter or instagram and see exactly what's going on in harvest in brazil or whatever you don't have to wait for a paper or anything through the or in the post but i mean what do you think of technology going forward i think to a large degree it's fantastically brill but on the other hand i think it's done a massive amount of damage i think people lost the art of communication i think that Farmers and merchants and end users, um, as the younger generations come through, they genuinely are not talking to each other. They're WhatsApping, emailing, and thinking that the written word is contractually sound versus verbal agreement, which has always been the conversation you have. Your word is your bond. Developing the memory to remember exactly what you said in a trade deal is something that evolves within you. And I think nowadays people can't have that conversation. And you can't articulate every nuance on a WhatsApp message. You know, what about if it's slightly damp? Will you chuck it out? What happens if the nitrogen is just slightly too high or too low? Those things is a conversation and a trust without having it in black and white. I think it's great for lawyers and accountants and the rest of the world maybe, but farmers produce imperfect goods every single year. Every single season, every single field has produced something that's not quite right. And there are conversations to be had about what should happen if it isn't quite right, as opposed to, I'm buying 175, 14.5 moisture, that's the end of it, boom. There's more to it than that. No, I agree. And I, I can see the benefit in WhatsApp. There's also a few of my friends who work in different industries, a lot of them are all financial. They're actually not allowed to permit to trade through WhatsApp because they're saying it doesn't actually stand up, a lot of them. I mean, some do, but Good. not that many. Yeah, yeah. When you are, as you know, recently I've been arguing about the electronic grain passport and, you know, you're a Luddite, was one phrase that's been used. And, you know, you're the kid saying that you can see the emperor's naked is another one. You know, the reality of this morning we had a meeting and five phones couldn't get a signal, could they? And all of those realities about communication on paper, in theory, it works. Of course it works. Everything's perfect about it. But if you dare to say, well, actually, sometimes it doesn't or you're putting this at risk. The easiest route for a lazy person is just to say, he's a Luddite, he hasn't thought it through, he doesn't understand technology, he's old. There's much more to all of this change of communication than meets the eye. And the dynamic of relying upon the internet, especially now we've got AI coming through. Mm. Did you get those questions off an AI thing? 
I did, yeah, to a couple, yeah. You haven't asked me any of those questions because no, I, I looked at them. I thought, bloody hell, it can't be you. It must be. Yeah, must no, be I, I just, I literally, because I had five minutes or less than that to prepare for this interview. You might think it'd be easy interviewing, you know, someone you've known for a whole of your life, but actually it's not that easy. Never easy to interview no, no. anybody. So I just went on ChatGPT and put just, you know, pretty blank stuff and then it came up with some things which give you good guidelines, but yeah, not too much. But I think ultimately AI will, from my opinion, probably wrongfully, but um, AI will be able to put like molten barley through a, a machine that's got AI and we'll tell you about splits or germination or moisture and all of these different things. Yeah. The viability of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, well, that's probably a fair way off, but... Um, but that's a whole different subject, well, isn't it? Which, you know, they're talking about alkalines in barleys that may have had ergot. And eventually, you know, if someone pushes very hard on that one immediately, then it's goodbye malting barley. There's no point. There's absolutely no point in taking that risk. No, Forget of course it. not. Not even minutely interested. No one could do it. Unless you get major companies big enough to take you on in a law court, which is what it boils down to. Someone will sue you because they're bigger than you. You know, if Souffle buy Baird, you know, or maybe Heineken decide to sue Cargill, then it's a battle royal over alkaline in barley supply, fine. But in reality, you're just going to cease the ability for any farmer to grow a product because there might have been a piece of grass I got in there which might have left an alkali, which someone finds a thing and then they say, right, here's a two million pound bill. It becomes uninsurable. It becomes... Well, where do you think the industry's gone the right direction? I think when they moved from sacks to bulk, that was quite a wise move. (laughs) I think that, look, everyone understands the technology of storage, aeration, the dynamic of physically, the mechanics of everything, the physical side of things is much greater. I think that the introduction of farm assurance is brilliant. I think that there was some very lazy attitudes to food safety, you know, hideous that people would let their dogs use the wheat as a toilet you know i've seen some terrible things in my time you oh, scoop that off or you load it boy you know and rats and so i think farm assurance and the attempt by farmers to control the dynamic of that was brilliant i think the food industry has a very difficult job to do and i think as a nation i think we're very rule-minded i think that we very much stick to the rules and if anything we're too determined to be red tape about stuff So I think the regulations is good. I think that it's going too far if you allow other food to come into the country without those checks. You're completely breaking what I would describe as I've got a kind of fairness code. And Liz Truss's deals are inherently, hideously unbalanced, unfair. Do you think there should be the food standards that should point that out because a farmer's not going to be able to say that you know sounds like they're whinging yeah yeah for sure and not only that that's going to be a hard thing for them to do whereas they could then say look at the way that for example chickens are reared in the uk which is to prevent disease whereas in the states they kind of let them have disease and then chlorinate the meat afterwards do you think that should be something they should do look if we it's like back in the 1980s my dad chose exactly the wrong moment to go into producing raw milk from his jersey cows And at that point, there was a a movement from government to ban all raw milk on the basis of list. I don't know what the reason was, but it was, you know, the bad bits in there. If it wasn't pasteurized, were considered dangerous. Now, the benefit of hindsight, they were completely wrong. The goodness was destroyed more than the badness. If you eat it fresh or you drunk it fresh, it was better for you. But being the country that we are, yes, we'll kill all that off. We won't. We'll stop that. We'll become. And I think the food standards go too far. I think that you have to make it clean, make it dry, be very conscious of all the issues that affect you, mycotoxins, 
all of the things that can go wrong, making stuff stored properly, don't let people mix in crap into the bar. We've, you know, we've had people this year with perfectly good grain and a bit that went off because it got flooded or whatever, and they mixed the bloody stuff in, and it really has cost us money. Not them. It's like, oh, we didn't find it. And it's like, those things are very, very irritating. So an attitude to food safety should be completely paramount in everyone's mind. But at the same time, you need the government to say exactly the same thing for other people. You can't compete. We will not be able to compete. No. I mean, another thing that obviously we're seeing we're being pushed for from customers, which is ultimately coming from consumers, you know, to molsters, to us, to farmers, is more sustainability. How do you think that's going to go? I think it's great that people are actually looking at reducing the amount of parcels on the land in actually preserving the roots because there's clearly a benefit. Plants do have some form of communication with each other. Plants clearly have some form of, if you leave the roots there, there's better drainage, it's better healthier soil, there's lots more worms, etc. And so there's a very big key benefit and preserving soil or growing soil even is what you can call it is the right thing to do because it's been depleting for decades where we've farmed out of a can and just pushed for yield and in the end you're going to run out of soil that's good enough to do it. Quantifying that's difficult though isn't it and also the admix issue that we're seeing. Well that's what I was going to come to the admix thing it's all very well but if you drive around there's an awfully large amount of barley in wheat this year. There was an awfully large amount of wheat in barley last year. Malting barley with a wheat admix isn't malting barley. It's probably still here this year, it's just the barley's taller, isn't it? I guess the wheat will show shortly, but certainly in the wheat there's some hideous admixes. So as people have stopped, have gone for direct drilling, it's all very lovely, but the actual product, if you're aiming at a premium, you've just blown it to pieces by having barley in it. And I think that's, you know, there's lots of examples of companies saying, well, you know, we need to do these lovely green things and then... You know, I know of someone who had some potatoes that were turned down by a big supermarket because they got them to follow a certain criteria and then went, no, the potatoes aren't up to it. And that's like, oh, thanks very much. Yeah, um, that's the risk, isn't it? Well, it's, again, this is all these forces of, you know, you've got to do this, but I want to have purity of variety and I don't want to have any admix, I don't want to have all these other things. And ergot, you know, the grass around the outside of a field introduces grass ergot to fields that didn't have ergot. There's a whole host of things. And it's all very well putting those criteria on, but we come back to the point about if you have a shipload of something coming from another country, it doesn't have those tests. There's a certificate saying it hasn't got those things. That's just a guy testing every 500 tonnes. So the consumer in this country shouldn't be allowed to buy those products without having exactly the same traceability as every farmer in this country has to pay for. And there's no way the consumer is going to do that because it undermines their opportunity to screw the price down. Agreed. But who's going to bring people's awareness to that? Who do you think is responsible? Well, if it's the farmer, he sounds like a whinger. If it's the merchant, he sounds like a whinger. If it's the end user, it's not commercially in his interest. If it's the government, they don't give a shit because they're just interested in being in power and saying what they have to. And if they get in a corner, they say, we spent 55 billion trillion pounds on farming and we're going to spend another 700 million over the next 44 years. Uh, or we might not do if the other lot are allowed in and they're terrible and they start talking about something else. <laughs> the only way I think you'll get to a place where we really cover this dilemma or this problem is going to be farmers saying, no, I'm not growing that. No, I think that's quite interesting. It's a long way off because farmers have got plenty of fat around them. The arable sector, not animal sector, let's be clear before anyone weeps. But I think there is a point at which you have to say, no, I am not going to do that on that basis. And the alkalis in following ergot, if that gets pushed through as a fact, I think that's the moment. Who, who's pushing that through? It's a food safety thing. You know, the malting industry, the people talking about it, mm. 
blaming Europe or someone, no doubt, but or the brewers are saying it, or somebody somewhere way up the tree with a big company. Well, you know, let them try and run their great big maltings without any barley. Whether a farmer can stand that, I don't know. But I'm saying that I see that not in my lifetime, but I see that as the only solution for farmers to get some sense or take some of the risk out. Yeah, certainly. I mean, just coming back to something that was sort of sticking in my head. So obviously, you know, failed professional footballer. Why grain? I got a job at Dalgetty's. First job I applied for. I went into an interview with a chap called Malcolm Butcher two days before I started. And I said I'd been recommended by my elder sister went to Young Farmers at Eagle Young Farmers Club. And she knew a guy called Paul Caulfield, Russell's dad. Mm. And he said, oh, they might be looking for someone at Dalgetty's. Get him to contact them. So I contacted them in the old-fashioned manner of writing. And... I was asked to go for an interview because I happened to be looking for a documentation clerk. So I went for an interview and actually that was a few weeks earlier. I met a chap called Eric Thompson, who is a chemical trader, and he had gone to Nottingham University a year ahead of my dad. And so I had an interview with him and he said, well, if something comes up, we'll let you know or we'll give you the nod. So following that, about four or five weeks later, they said, right, come in, have another interview. It was on the 1st of July and Malcolm Butcher said, he sat down and he went through, we've possibly got a job here, we're paying, I can't remember what it was, £1,450 a year or something, £1,250 a year, I can't remember what it was, and letters on the wall in the hallway there. Uh, £16.32 a week was the net result. Uh, anyway, and so he went through all this stuff and kind of sat there talking to this accountant guy, and I was like, you know, very green, wet behind the ears, little 16-year-old lad. And he said, have you got any questions? I said, yeah, have I got the job or not? <laughs> <laughs> He said, well, you're not supposed to ask that question. I said, well, I need to know. He went, I couldn't realise it was innocently done, but I was actually putting him under pressure. And he made a snap decision. He went, yeah, I think you probably have. I went, oh, that's right then. Thank you very much. I won't apply to college. I won't go to college. And I was going to have to go to Yarmouth Tech or something. So it was a great save. And he said, start in a couple of days' time. And that was it. Nice. And obviously agriculture yeah, had a calling. Well, in my head, I was still going to be a professional footballer then because I played at Akel for a season. Then I went on Yarmouth Town, put in seven days for me. And I went to play for Yarmouth and I, I hated it. I was with a load of Yarkos and they're, you know, I know that Matthew Adams got on well at Yarmouth, but I was only there for about eight weeks and we were playing in the Premier Division against all of the top sides. And Bish, who I worked with, was at St Andrews Football Club and he gave me such grief about playing for Yarmouth. And it was constant. He'd, go, he'd just go in, he'd boo or he'd hiss or he'd just really childish, but got inside my head, you know, you should be playing for the academy, which was St. Andrew's FC, which we used to sponsor, if you remember, those tops. Mm, St. Yeah. Andrew's. Anyway, and uh, so when I got to Yarmouth, I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it. I'd had trials at Norwich. I'd been kept on a kind of, I was about 16, and I was having my trials. And there was a three-month period where I went back for training sessions on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then... They went, nah, we'll call you, mate. And, and that was the moment when I realised I couldn't be. And I kind of grateful I had a job so I could get my head around it. And then I thought, right, that's not going to be my career. So I'll go and play for St Andrews and please the boss. And it was at that moment, I kind of went, I had to change my view. So Dalgetty's had an office. The documentation clerk had these guys who had been doing the same job for 700 years. And I clearly wasn't prepared to do that. But you had glass partitions, so I could see the chemical department, I could see the seed department, I could see what it was like in the documentation department. If I could get away with walking into the secretary's pool, I'd go in there whenever I could, because there were girls in there, just to see how things were. And then I'd come back, and behind me, behind my desk, was the grain room, where they seemed to be, A, either out at a dinner, B, at the pub, C, playing cricket in the room, or D, just larking about, and occasionally incredibly busy. And I thought, I want to work in there. For no other reason, it looked fun. And that was it. Nice. Do you still think it's a bit like that? 
I've tried to recreate Dalgetty Rackheath all of my life, wherever I've worked. I loved working there. I've worked at a number of other companies. The second time I recreated it was at a company called John Lee Bennett, where actually Ivan Bish came to work for me. It was just how things had worked out at a certain time in his life. So he came to work for me briefly, but I had Alan Weimer, Ivan Bishop, myself, and you know some backup staff there. And that was funny. That was very funny and fun, because yeah. we just just funny. Did what we liked. And the parent company closed it down. I then went through the wilderness for a year or two, worked some big organisations, didn't fit. And the only time I've ever got back to that, I went to work for Allied Grain briefly at Aylsham, which I worked with Bish, just me and him in that office. But he went up the greasy pole. I was stuck at Aylsham, didn't get on with a number of people in the organisation there. Cocked up on options trading in 1994 and then left corporate and ended up the only time I've got back to the same feeling is doing grain. And I really do like what we have. I know I'm the boss, but it is funny. Yeah, no, it is funny. I keep telling the boys outside, I was like, you're going to look back at this when you leave and wherever you end up in your life, you're going to look and laugh and think that was a good time. Well, Abby said she saw Rosie, who worked with us for a couple of years, three or four years, and she's worked other places now for a period of time. And she said, looking back, it is a good place to work. It's not corporate. We try very hard to do everything properly. And it isn't politically correct all the time, but you haven't got anyone going around wounded either or or looking for reasons to be disgruntled. It's kind of, everyone seems to know which direction to pull the rope, don't they? And everyone is doing exactly (coughs) that. I think that's a key point. And everyone works together, Hmm. which I think is a really healthy thing. If things go go wrong, you know, on any book with anyone, everyone pulls together and pulls the right direction. It helps you make money, doesn't it? If you're making a profit, the pressure's off, which we've had a couple of years of. So I guess the next thing to worry about is next year, isn't it? Yeah, almost certainly. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time. That's okay. I think that was actually quite good. I think yeah. you're better at it than I am. You're <laughs> like we're very relaxed and calm. So there's AI questions, I think. No, no, but you didn't ask any of those. You asked, you went off. The best thing was, for what it's worth, is your first, because you're going to have to do this on your own with some of the guys your generation, because they're getting fed up with listening to old people, apparently. So you've got to go out there and do exactly that. You've got to have an Almy on there, so get old Sam on board and a few others of your era and do exactly this. Yeah, we could settle off. Go to the guns and the quiet corner. No, no, you can't go to... <laughs> well, you could, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. There's no such thing as a quiet corner. This picks up every sound. Yeah. So when you're fiddling with that box, that'll pick it up, by the way. Anyway. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Cool. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get updates on new episodes and when they are released. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio, a full-service creative agency specialising in websites, digital marketing and branding. Get in touch to inquire with their friendly team on info at eastcoastdesignstudio.co.uk.